Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. In the theme of Thanksgiving, I didn't grow up making a big fuss about Thanksgiving. My family, I don't know if it's because they were Italian and Turkey wasn't a big thing, you know. I, you know, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it's because we lived in Montreal and um, for most of my life and, and uh, most of my immediate, not immediate family, my extended family was in, in Ontario, but I didn't grow up making a big deal about Thanksgiving. I don't remember like big meals or big occasions. And then when we started uh, Westside, this church, um, 19 years ago now, this month, crazy to think about that, we started to meet some friends that came from out of province. And they had all these Thanksgiving traditions. And so someone invited us over for their famous pumpkin pie. And we were at somebody's house for their famous turkey or famous, uh, you know, cranberry sauce. And I remember a couple named Ian and Joanna from Edmonton. Uh, they introduced us to their pie and uh, a great family, Andy and, Har- Andy and Sylvia Harder, they introduced us to their stuffing. The Weavers introduced us to a bunch of other great food from out east. And uh, they're all back in their provinces. But I remember they opened up their table to us. And we weren't doing much, like I said, but they opened up their table to us and they made room for us. And when we think about a weekend like this, it's one, I think it's one of the best Canadian holidays because the name actually gives us something to consider that is tied to the gospel, which is gratitude and grace. You know, and, and there's a bunch of other holidays that are great, but this specific holiday is just the name of it. Whether you celebrate it or not, whether you're, it's simple or big, just the, the importance of gratitude and grace is so significant in the scriptures. And one of the things we do as a church on a monthly basis, we celebrated this last week, we celebrate communion. And one of the words for communion is a word that often we don't say it as much. We say it once in a while. It's the word Eucharist. And the Greek word Eucharisto actually means thanksgiving. It's the word that Jesus used or that was recorded of Jesus in the Gospels when he spent time with his disciples before going to the cross and he broke bread and he gave thanks. He Eucharistoed in that moment when he broke bread and poured wine. And he was having a meal with his friends, with his followers, with this core group of people who would become the expansion of God's family. We say God's family as the church because we are God's kids, and he is our heavenly father. And often Jesus is referred to as our older brother, in a sense, the brother who sacrificed himself for us. And these words that we use, even in Christian circles, brother and sister and family and father and friend, are all part and parcel of what is kind of inside this beautiful theme of Eucharist where Jesus is thankful for the bread. And it all happened around a table. It all happened around a table. That's why I set up this modest table with, um, I know it's only paper plates. I'm sorry. Some of you guys are thinking, Dave is just horrible. If this was my house, I would have had like the best stuff. But here's like paper plates and, and plastic cutlery and plastic cups. But it look, it's not bad. Like it's not bad. At least there's some red in there. And you're thinking it's not Christmas, David. Should I get it. But look, I did, the be- I did the best that I could. But here's the thing. This all happened around a table, a beautiful picture of what God invites us to and what God wants to do in us. The gospel of God's kingdom is known as a gospel of reconciliation. Now, we finished a series last week uh, about making room for renewal, God's work within us, 
And we talked about several things in that series. And last week, we ended off with four postures, key postures of, of, uh, uh, that really make room for renewal. We talked about prayer and how the, the prayer that we looked at in Ephesians 3 included surrender and unity and intercession and worship, right? We talked about those four things last week. Interestingly enough, I love to chat with people after a gathering or during the week. And one of my common questions, don't be freaked out if I ever ask you this question, I always say, like, so what, like, anything... Was God doing anything in you, know, in you during our gathering this week or last week or whatever? And I love hearing people's responses because it gives me a sense of what God is up to. And sometimes it has nothing to do with what I particularly said. It was just like God was doing this. But last week, I heard more than enough people say, oh man, that like posture of unity. Wow, that was a hard one. And I was like, oh, interesting. We talked about intercession, surrender, worship, praying. We called each other to prayer. And then I'm like, what's, what's God up to in you? Oh, man. Yeah, I just see sometimes the contention in my family. Or I, there's, this person, there's this other Christian we're trying to deal through a couple of things. Or, oh, man, you know, one of my friends is struggling to stay connected with me. We have these different political ideas. And I just kept hearing this, you know. And I thought, well, if I've heard it from four or five or six people, it means that it's probably in 10 or 20 or 30 people where this struggle with unity is there. And the Apostle Paul, when he got the church together, he encouraged them to follow Jesus' invitation to come around a table. And there's one church, I talked about it really briefly last week, is the church of Corinth. He exposes an obstacle to their unity as a church community, as a family, as brothers and sisters, and it happened when they were coming around the table. And I think it has a lot to do with thanksgiving and gratitude, but I want to read it with you. So if you've got your Bibles, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 17 to actually 34. So we're going to read it. You can follow on the screen or just listen. And this is right in the middle of a letter that Paul writes to this church called Corinth that is, is struggling. It's one of the, the New Testament letters where Paul really hones in on a couple of very particular topics um, where he's concerned for them. And, and this is one of them, and we get a lot out of this. And so, so we're just going to listen to this instruction particularly. Okay, you ready for it? Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you. That's important because sometimes Paul says, hey, you're doing great on this. Love your faith and hope. I love your love. I love this. Here he says, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. That's probably a sarcastic statement, but it, there could be some truth to that. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Twice Paul says this. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, when he eucharistoed, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this, it, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you who are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. And about other things, I will give instructions when I come. I wish we would have gotten a chance to hear those other instructions. Who knows what they were all about besides what was in this letter. God, as we just open up this text, we just open our hearts to you. As Jonathan prayed, their church prayed for us this morning, we also pray for City Beautiful in Orlando as they're meeting and gathering and praying and singing and worshiping. May they know your presence today, God, in their gathering. Thank you for the fellowship and community um, we have around the world with other believers. We surrender this moment to you. Amen. Hey, right here, I mean, really simply, we see the church's theology and the, the church's practice around the table. The church's theology is the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ, the presence of Jesus that, that we believe is active when we break bread and pour wine together, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus' death. That's why we call it Good Friday. And this all is part of the theology of the bread and wine. But there's a practice that was active in the early church. It was around the table. It was around tables. It was unlike our symbolic bread and wine. We take a little piece of bread or have a little cup of juice because we're gathering in large numbers. We don't have big tables around. But in the early church, it was more the symbolic. It was around a table. And the symbol is good. But the table is where the church practiced this. It was rooted in Jesus' Last Supper. It was the breaking of bread post his resurrection with the, the, the people on the way to Emmaus, with the, the disciples on the beach, and, and then the early church gathering together in homes and, and beyond and breaking bread and having meals together. This letter is a picture. We get this picture. We're so grateful that Paul addressed this because if he wouldn't have addressed it, we wouldn't have seen the significance of how much they practiced this. It was a common practice of the church. It was common, very normal for them to get around a table for a meal. And at some point when they were around the table, someone would break bread. Maybe the elder would break bread and pour wine, and they would pause to talk about and affirm Christ's body and blood, and maybe they'd pause to pray in the middle of that meal. And it usually happened in someone's home, big enough, with maybe a big enough space. Maybe some of you guys have a big enough space in your home for 20 or 30 people around couches or cushions or chairs or blankets and, and tables or sofas and the church just gathering around like that. And it was this unity and reconciliation and community that was at work as they were around the table, the fruit of the gospel, where diverse backgrounds, ethnicities, wealth, status, uh, gender, slave, master, free, Jew and Greek, all together. See, this is something important. I want us to get, catch this. The table is where the church gathered most. There was large gatherings where possible. We see it in 
the book of Acts. We see it in church history. But the table, at least in those early years, was where the church gathered most. It's where they celebrated Jesus. It's where they embodied the gospel. They didn't just think of the gospel. They didn't just recite the gospel. They embodied the gospel. They, they, it was grace and reconciliation and healing. And love was caught, not just taught. They didn't go to, a, go to a gathering and just say, love one another, love one another, love one another. They went to a gathering and said, oh my gosh, I'm so different from you. How am I going to love you? Oh, this is different. How are we going to work this out? Um, I, was here, I heard a podcast of two Catholic people, actually, um, two Catholic thinkers and scholars talking about a very popular YouTuber that people are claiming has become a Christian. And I loved what they said. They said, you know what? When, when uh, we'll know when he's become a Christian, when he's sitting beside someone in church and the Eucharist passes and he struggles because he, he, he struggles with them and he has to figure out how to love them. I'm like, yeah, that's a good, that's a good, yeah, I like that. That's a good framework. Um, but here's the thing. As much as the table is where we celebrate this and love is caught, it's also a place for Paul in that setting that revealed their lack of unity that revealed an obstacle to the reconciling work of the gospel. Did you catch some of Paul's words? I do not commend you. Twice he says that. When you come together, it's for the worse. Oh my gosh. Imagine it's like, hey, when we come together for Sunday, it's not for good, it's for the worse. The horrible stuff happens here. Then he says, I hear there are divisions among you. And here was the problem for this church particularly, this church particularly, there was a dividing line that was very noticeable, at least what he, he says here. Like he says, later I'm going to share other things. So maybe there's other stuff. But right here, he's addressing the dividing line between the rich and the poor around the table, in that house, in that gathering. And he says specifically, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What he's saying is, the wealthy among them have brought food, and they jump in and start eating while those who brought less are waiting around. The wealthy came with some food, and they were hungry, so they ate, and those who were also hungry but didn't bring food or didn't have as much were waiting around. Imagine a potluck. We want to throw a potluck in a few weeks from now towards the end of the month. Imagine a potluck, and someone who has greater capacity says, you know what, man, I'm going to bring some smoked meat peats here. I'm going to have it, whatever. We have these tables, and all of a sudden, that person and, his, and their family and maybe a few friends, are all, you, like, they're all hovering around smoked meat peat. They didn't put it at the common table. They just kept it for themselves. And then like, we, someone walks by and like oh my gosh, it smells so good. I wish I could have a little bit of that. But they've just kept it for themselves. They've bought it and purchased it and secured it and said, we're going to have this. And then someone who maybe was only able to afford to bring some crackers or some juice or something, it's like they kind of stay hungry, but these people, man, they feasted on pretty good Montreal smoked meat. Sorry if I made you hungry. That's what was going on. Wine was also a luxury. But it seems like some brought the wine, didn't share with anybody, drank it all themselves. And Paul's like, you know, if you want to drink that much, drink it at home. And he's not condoning drunkenness, but he's trying to like prove this point, right? So what would happen is they're like, hey, come over here. I got really good wine, but it's only for a few of us. You could taste it. 
Wealthy Christians at the time were a blessing to the church because they often had large homes where they could gather enough people. But before someone became a Christ follower, a common practice among the wealthy was they often had two or three gathering rooms. So maybe they would invite a bunch of people and the more elite people would hang around in one room and the more common people would hang around in the other room. And it's very possible that this was also slowly seeping into how they gathered as a church. And Paul is slightly saying, hey, when you got baptized, you baptized your home too, right? You baptized your pocketbook too. How do we share this? So Paul's unhappy because this is not what the table is meant to be. The communion table is a unifier, not a divider. How is it possible that when the church gathers, our differences become evident? Well, it's okay that they're evident, but how do we work through them? And this grieves Paul. And so this table becomes a revealer of the great contrast that was happening in Corinth. So this meal that was supposed to embody reconciliation that the gospel was doing, rooted in the cross, became equally an, exp- an exposition, an examination of the disparities that people hold on to and are evident to. Some are left hungry, while some lavish on wine. Some are left without, and some have everything they need. So Paul says some strong words. He says, when you do this, you show contempt for the church of God. Now, when we read Church of God, don't just think, oh, the Church of God in some big, grandiose terms. It's the church, the family, the people, the relationships, God's children, brothers and sisters. Paul says when you do this, you show contempt for the Church of God. You humiliate those who have nothing. And then it's this big phrase later on. You participate in this meal in an unworthy manner. You come and we're here and we're sharing this food, but when we break bread and when we pour wine, because you have come in this way, because you have already divided in how you've set things up and how you've hoarded for yourself and how you've left people hungry, but you lavish on wine, because you've done that, you're breaking this bread in an unworthy manner. This is not what this table is supposed to represent. And so to practice table fellowship with intentional divisions was contradictory to the gospel of reconciliation. And so Paul says, when you do that, you bring judgment upon yourself. So for this church, for Corinth, it was a rich and poor issue that he was dealing with. And so we're not here to blame wealthy people or not, or talk about just this, this, this disparity. But here's my question to you and me. What other dividing lines are there among us? What other dividing lines are in your life with people? What other dividing lines are, in, are, are very clear between you and another Christian? Between you and another person? That's important to ask. Because I think that just as much as this was an issue that led people to break bread in an unworthy manner... The other dividing lines, even if it wasn't about money, maybe it was about race, maybe it was about social status, maybe it was about culture, maybe it was about something else. All of a sudden, that also leads us to break bread in an unworthy manner. So my question to us is, what other dividing lines exist? And I'm not going to be Paul to you today. I'm not going to say, this is... (laughs) I'll write a letter this week or something. Just joking. Third Corinthians, maybe. Maybe. 
But that's important. We've got to ask that question. What other dividing lines exist before within us? That's something you need to think about and let the Lord work in you. Because here's the beautiful opportunity with this table. We are called to the table. We're called to this. We're called to share this. We're called to allow this picture to help us see what an embodied gospel looks like in our everyday relationships within the church and also how that overflows outside the church to a certain degree. We're called to something at the table. So here's my encouragement to you, because if, if a few of us and maybe more of us were feeling the pinch about growing in unity and making room for God to work among us, then we should take it seriously and say, Lord, work, show, expose, teach me, help me, reveal this in me so I can respond. So here's the first thing. I think the first thing is it starts here. Once a month, how, when do we take communion here? Which Sunday? First Sunday of the month. We do this pretty much all year. First Sunday of the month, unless something changes because of certain patterns or things going on. But generally, we take this. And my encouragement to you is that it starts here. We take this communion meal. Of course, it's symbolic because, let's be honest, we're just breaking bread and having a little glass of juice. But it's symbolic. But that's important because when we come together, we're reaffirming that. We're reminding ourselves of that. We're celebrating the gospel. We're celebrating reconciliation. We're celebrating healing and salvation and forgiveness. We're proclaiming the good news of Jesus' death to one another and to the world around us, that that is a great equalizer when people come to the foot of the cross. So it starts here. When we take communion, even though it's a symbolic meal, it's not a whole table, it starts here. But then it overflows into our meals. It overflows into our, our, our families. It overflows into our friendships. It overflows into our tables at home, whether it's a table in a restaurant or a table in a house. It overflows from this table to your table, from our table to your tables. And it overflows into our meals and how we treat one another. And I love Paul's little phrase here that he talks about in verse 29. See, he says, For whoever eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. He's inviting us. He's saying people have come and they're not recognizing that the body's at work. They're not recognizing that me and Julie are, we're not recognizing, me and Julie are brother and sister in Christ. And then her bank account might look very different than mine. Her background might look very different than mine. But if I need to recognize it, that's, those differences don't stop us from being the body. So I need to discern that she is part of the body and she has to discern that I'm part of the body and then we can grow together. And then Paul says, how do you do that? You wait for one another. Well, for them particularly, right? They, the wealthy people came. They brought their awesome food. Paul's saying, you know how you discern the body? Wait for them. Wait for other people. That was their issue. You know how you discern the body? Don't show up hungry. If you're so hungry and you have the means to eat, eat at home, show up, and be equal. That, Paul is getting very practical there. And so in your dividing lines, whatever they is, they are, you need to get practical. You need to ask yourself, how can, I, how can I see what divides us and how can I practically discern that this person and this person is part of my spiritual family and then work towards that? There was a youth ministry in Montreal um, I just so appreciated this practice they had. So they used to you know, go out after church, go out after a youth event, and I knew the, the ministry team leader there. And I heard that when they would go out after church and they would get together, there was a, a kind of an unwritten rule. And the rule was this. If somebody shows up and you go to McDonald's 
and they can only afford a fry, but you can afford a Big Mac trio, you have two options. You only order a fry, or you share your Big Mac trio. <laughs> but if, if, now, of course, hey, if me and, uh, you know, Bobby show up to McDonald's and he really doesn't want to eat, but he can afford it, that's his choice, right? But if he can't, I love this model. They said, as a youth group, as a, as a community, if so-and-so can't afford this, then don't buy your big meal. Or if you can, then share your meal with them. Or if you have the capacity, buy a meal for them. But don't let them sit there hungry while you're feasting on the trio. And I thought, wow, that's, that's, isn't that practical for like teenagers and all of us, really? I mean, I thought that was just amazing that they would discern the body with one another. And what that means is they're making, this is the next idea, they're making room at their table for everybody. Because sometimes some of those obstacles, whether it's social status or finances or, or race or this or that, sometimes they inherently culture makes them obstacles at our table, but we should make room so those obstacles don't become an obstacle at our table and we make room. So we open up our table. And so I'm not, you know, I, I know like some of you guys are feeling nervous right now. Oh my gosh, I don't have room for one more person tomorrow Thanksgiving. Who am I going to invite? I'm not saying that. Like if you, if you can do that, please go ahead. I would challenge you to do that. But what I would challenge you more so than just commemorating it on one day and then feeling good about it or guilty about it, I would say, hey, from this weekend to Christmas weekend, can you open up your table at least once? Just one time, open up your table in this season. There was a family in our church that for a season uh, in their earlier years, they were part of another church when they were moving to a certain part, and they, and they so appreciated. They told me about this family in the church that just had it on their radar. Like, I want to welcome that person in. I want to welcome that person in. And they did it periodically. And I remember this family was so touched. They told me, they said, we want to become that kind of home. We want to become that kind of home. And I thought that was a good conviction. And, he, and here's, here's kind of where this comes together, is this. Jesus is already present at our meals. When we take communion, Jesus is present here. When you break bread at home, Jesus is present. When we intentionally break bread, when we intentionally allow that moment... You know, last night, because I was thinking about this, last night we were, just, we were about to eat and there was one or two people over and uh, when, I, when we were praying, I just thought, like, it just reminded me, like, yeah, Jesus, you're, you're here. Like, you're present. And it, that became part of our prayer, too. Like, remind us that you're present. And this is, here's the thing. If this is my table and you're sitting over here, what this means is that I need to understand that Jesus is sitting over here, right? And so if Jesus is sitting over here, and you're sitting over here, and I'm sitting over here, then we're family, right? He's our Savior, our Lord, our King, but also, in a sense, we are a, ch a child of God. If Christ is present at the table, so is his body. And if Christ is always present when we break bread here or when we break bread at home or when we open up our tables, if he's present, that means everybody around the table, we need to welcome them, right? And so that's an important piece in our minds when we, when we think about our breaking bread, when we think about our homes, when we think about making space in our lives. If Jesus is present, if Jesus is present, we must make room for not just Jesus, 
for his body, for his people. I'm going to invite the, the team to come back as we close this morning, just briefly. And um, so here's my, my, my three or four asks. Make monthly communion a staple in your calendar. If you're watching online today and you're like, I don't know, you're like, hey, I fall into a pattern with the pandemic. I come to church on a Sunday, you know, periodically. I would say at the very least, and I'm talking to the online crowd, but anybody here, make the first Sunday of the, of the month a must. Why? Because this is where we come together and break bread and pour wine. Amen? That, that's what we do. And I, I would say, of course, we gather every week. And of course, this practice is important every week as we worship and learn and grow and connect. But when we break bread, when we practice what Jesus asked us to practice, what the early church practiced, what the table represents in 1 Corinthians 11 and throughout church history, let's make the monthly time together a practice. And maybe that might be the, great, the best time to say, that Sunday of the month, I'm going to make room for someone else in the afternoon because I'm going to extend the meal. I'm going to st- extend the symbolism of this meal to my afternoon. I loved last week that our young adults went to Fairview food court on communion Sunday. We extended the meal. Sure, some ate junky food that day, but, but, but the point is this. The meal, it's like the meal was extended. Communion was extended. So make monthly communion a staple. Join our potluck later this month. And if you bring smoked meat, share it with everybody. <laughs> if you bring crackers, share it with everybody. But like when these potlucks come back and as they come back periodically, just think about it. Say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and work my schedule around to be present there and to be a collaborator there. And then I already said this. It, could you extend your table at least once between now and Christmas? I'm, I don't want to frazzle anybody. Oh, my goodness. I'm doing, it's, no, between now and Christmas. I know not everybody's like the kind of home um, kitchen cook type of person. That's, that's okay. You know, it could be like chips and water. It could be, let's go meet at Second Cup and hang out there. But can you extend your table, whatever that looks like, once between now and the end of the year? And then lastly, will you let the Holy Spirit expose any dividing lines among us? If we're going to make room for renewal, let's let the Holy Spirit um, expose any dividing lines among us and then equip us to embody the table. Equip us to embody the table. You guys can start playing. I want to just um, end with this. And our, we've, been, we've had a group all year called Following King Jesus. And we ended up doing a theme a couple of weeks ago on the table. And I, I highlighted it last week because it was so instrumental. The last few discussions have been so rich and wonderful. And someone in our group, her name is Cheryl, she she, her and her husband Walter joined our group and I, just last week she just blew me away she said you know even she, she just felt she said that, that this group enabled her not only to learn and grow but to be able to share freely with the people around her and it was awesome because we all have different kind of political persuasions different you know backgrounds different ethnicities different social status but when I heard her say those words I said yes we want to create places where people can share their life with others and get the back and forth so we can grow, but not in a place where, like, I'm afraid to say anything. And I just, I love that. 
And this is what we read a couple of weeks ago. And I just want to read it. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to close your eyes as I read this. Because this is a picture that uh, a New Testament scholar paints of the early church. And why I want you to close your eyes is I want you to imagine yourself in the room in first century Rome, okay? I just, just bear with me on this. It's going to be kind of like an imaginative experience so we can kind of see ourselves there. And, um, and maybe place yourself there. All right, now, here we go. Imagine going to the church in the first century. If you were in a major Roman city such as Rome, Ephesus, or Pompeii, you'd leave your home and walk in leather sandals or barefoot through the city and paved roads. Pavers in your city are large stone blocks, not as smooth or as square as the ones we find in our driveways or walkways today. So it's not hard to stub your toe on the way to gather. You enter a house church where everyone gathers and you immediately encounter some church kids playing hide and seek. Someone passes you carrying a spit with um, some already roasted meat dangling on the end. You also see that the household's former shrine to Apollo has been desecrated, better yet liberated from idols. You walk through an atrium where the evening sun gently falls on you and then a few steps beyond the atrium you enter into a large room where others are sitting. Some lounge on the floor while others are on sofas and pillows. Some slaves, some free. The elder or maybe the pastor or the leader would be there and opens a small scroll and he's chatting with someone about what it says. Outside the room on the veranda are low tables and some have already taken their seats for dinner. There are flasks of wine and some pots of water and some trays of food, maybe chicken and fish, some veggies and some baked bread. There you sit at the table eating next to a Roman magistrate whom you had not met other than a legal case some time back, but he doesn't remember you at this moment. He does pass the peace, however, with a handshake and a kiss to the cheek. You also meet a young Jewish man who not only follows the Torah, but believes in Jesus and observes that he's sitting, that he's eating what he calls kosher. Across the room, you observe that a slave, instead of serving others, is sitting next to a Roman citizen. There are different statuses identified by their clothing, and they're praying together with their hands clasped. The conversation is going wonderfully with others around you when someone, the elder, stands up and says a prayer to lead the group in the Eucharist. The elder reads the great apostle who had been to this city some years back, and what he reads is about Jesus' betrayal and death and resurrection to the throne of God, and you hear about bread and body and about wine and blood, and then he passes the bread and wine around the room. You snap off some bread, you eat it, take a deep gulp of wine, you pass these to the magistrate next to you, and the table grows silent. Your thoughts wander to what has happened to you because of what happened to Jesus. Dying so that you are now saved from a life of sin, you recall your own liberation as you sit with a few dozen liberated people. Your world has been turned upside down. Your husband tolerates your superstition. Your oldest son thinks you're stupid, while your daughter and younger son sometimes accompany you. You hope your husband will join you someday, and you have begun to notice an urgency in your prayers for your older son, sometimes moving into tears or anxiety. He's become far too Roman in his ways, and you know Roman ways lead to slavery to sin and grasping for status and uninhibited sexual expression. And the elder speaks about the cup and announces it is God's love and grace and yes for everyone. And he reports a sad story. He heard about a church in Greece. You think it might be Corinth 
where some of the wealthier followers of Jesus were eating before the poorer ones arrived. And the elder makes it clear that Roman ways stop at the door. And that everyone, men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Greeks, and rich and poor are all one in Christ. And the elder says this Passover meal cup is a cup of thanksgiving, Eucharistia. And that by drinking from that cup, each person is participating in the death of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah who can liberate the Romans. And you realize how personal this is to you. He then says that eating the bread means that you have just partaken in the body of Jesus gave for you. The, the body that made you all one, whether you were Jewish or Roman, man or woman, slave or Roman citizen. The elder then warns about dancing with the demons by engaging in worship in the Roman shrines. Your husband still keeps one near the front door. And previously, the elder spoke with you about the host's conversation, how he tore down and destroyed the shrine to Apollo in his home. But he urges you to be very careful about eating food offers to idols because the host was still struggling with this commitment to Jesus as the one true Lord. And as the sun is fading over the Italian countryside, you prayed for God's good hand of grace to fall on your family as it happened to fall on you. Throughout the evening, the elder has connected the whole life of the Eucharist because the church begins at the table. What you experience in the villa is an amazing fellowship, a new kind of family. Holy Spirit, as we have just made room this morning for you to speak into our own hearts and our own church community and our own practices, may we make one step at least forward to being your people, to participating at your table, to making room at your table, to making room for others. May we recognize the presence of Jesus when we do. May we see the people we lock eyes with as people who matter to you. And may they matter to us. May our tables become larger. May our grace become evident. May our differences be set in the light of the glorious gospel of your kingdom and the wonderful person of your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.